Hi, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. Now, in experience design, there's three fundamental elements. There's design thinking, there's design doing, and there's also design strategizing. And seldom do all three things come together in one package. This clearly presents a problem because thinking isn't enough without the doing, And doing isn't enough without a strategy for what we are doing and, frankly, why we are doing it. How to tie these things together becomes not just a challenge, but a requirement and an imperative if you want your company to succeed long term. Taking the messy, ephemeral aspects of how we go through life, the expectations, the memories, the senses, and turning those things into strategic points for organizational action also becomes an imperative. And it is not just about having organizational action, but it's an important, but more importantly, organizational impact. The question becomes, in what ways are the experiences we design impactful? And how do we have impact that has larger meaning and that impact connected to a greater purpose? Now, changing behavior is hard because it is easy to come back to the old behaviors and having impact is often about changing behaviors. With old behaviors come predictable outcomes. And quite frankly, in a world where change is needed and change is needed right now, not someplace down the line or in the future, we can no longer abide by predictable outcomes and business as usual. And definitely not rely on behavior as usual either, right? Right. Uh, so today on the podcast, we are really excited to have Dr. Aga Shostek. Now, Aga is one of the foremost experience design thinkers and strategists around, so helping us really kind of bring these often disparate pieces together. And in 2021, uh, she published the Umami Strategy, which is a great title for a book, subtitle standing out by mixing business with experience design, so bringing together these important pieces of business strategy and thinking with EXD. Then she followed that up with another book called Leadership by Design, which is a guide to transform you as a leader in 2023. So central to all of this work is how to take the complex ideas and couple them with theoretical frameworks and then turn them into actionable strategies. So basically the the kind of framework ideas that we're opening up with is how do we take, again, those messy pieces, put them into some sort of functional strategic framework. And then I think you're right on there, Gary, with action without impact is not really worthwhile. So we need to care about what kind of impact it is that we're actually making. Now, her practical approach then is also inspired by this deeper knowledge that is built on her own unique path to her current work, which you might think about is is, uh, defined around this wonderfully tasty idea of umami. Now, in the podcast today, we're going to explore what is at the center of experience design as this emergent field. We discuss how She works as a type of experience therapist, which is also this other concept I really love and it's interesting. The idea here is that she helps her clients shift their worldview and strategy. And her Umami Strategy course is meant to help people find a way to do things that are meaningful to them and can be meaningful to others. I'm getting this good theme here of of therapy about helping people shift worldviews and, uh, and do work that is meaningful. Now, once people see that the change is in fact possible, then you can give them confidence to make those bigger changes you know, moving out of those behaviors. And ultimately, every experience designer is a person who wants to fix the world. 
I mean, at least we want to do that anyway. I don't right. want to fix the world, but first I have to fix me or so my therapist tells me. There you go. See, it makes sense. That's kind of experience therapy right there in a, in a box. Um, and so in this case, right through, through her perspective and work, Aga really definitely is on that mission to help deliver on that promise. And of course, we're just along for the ride. Um, so we're super excited to bring you this conversation with Aga Showstick, and we can't wait to get into it. So let's dive in. But I, I really don't know why it is that I, well, I do know why, that I'm so primed to remember the negative experiences much more than the positive ones. Um, we all have that. That's the way yeah. our brain works. We've, you know, we've, yeah. we've been biologically evolved to focus on threat and negative versus, because that's a bigger, that's a bigger danger than the positive is. Absolutely. Yeah. I, th I think that's the story, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So actually, I remember I was teaching this class. It's for like uh, CEOs, like, you know, okay. big, big bubbles. And, uh, and generally the, uh, the, the evaluation forms were like really positive apart right. from one. Right. And I cannot tell you anything that was written in the positive ones, but <laughs> I can decide what was written in this negative one, even right. though it was like a year ago or something, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, I, you know, I just, I can't even think about looking at, and I've, I've been doing a lot of therapy. I got to put mm -hmm. that out there. So I've been doing a lot of self-reflection, which is I don't highly recommend because the more you reflect on yourself, the more you find out that's wrong and you don't feel so good. But the fact that I'm kind of programmed to focus on that negative beyond the evolutionary part, I'm just petrified looking at, you know, feedback sometimes. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, I don't, do, I, do I need to live with this for the next, you know, 30 years? I don't know. Yeah. Just we get <laughs> offhand comment. Yeah, totally. <laughs> And so I don't want to, you know, it's like someone said, I don't know. Yeah. It could, that, that one part could have been better. Mm -hmm. And that that's, that's all I see. Yeah. 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 Sa same for me. And, and you know, like the thing is that. It impacts my confidence, even Absolutely. though it shouldn't, because most, most likely these things are not about me. And especially in this particular case that I was mentioning to you, it was not about me. It was about that guy. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. That, there's a there's a great what we you know say acronym right it's I don't know if you're familiar <laughs> with a with a product called Q-tips do you know what a Q-tip is do you have you know I know you have them in Poland but a Q-tip is like a little swab that you can use to clean up your hair, right? <laughs> oh yeah of course yeah, I just know, yeah. yeah. yeah so Q-tip yeah. is like a brand name here in the United States okay so one of the things that I've learned is you can take the word Q-tip for quit taking it personally mm -hmm. yeah so yeah. When so when someone says something it may or may not have anything to do with us. It might be to do with them. And that's, that's, that's their thing. It's not yeah, about me. Exactly. It's about wherever yeah. they were at that particular yeah. moment, which by yeah. the way, makes it really hard to design experiences. Yes. Because, because then like, how do you, you, how do you deal with that then? Yeah, totally. Totally. <laughs> you know, you have a customer who comes in and they're like, yeah, I didn't like that. You're like, well, you know, you, do, you know, if, if I knew you, I'd probably realize you don't like anything. So there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> right or, or something right or you were know, having a bad day or, yeah so when you're when you're talking about experience design with folks are you thinking about it you're writing about it you're speaking about it how do we tease out how much we can be responsible for versus how much is just beyond our control and we can do the best we can but at the end of the day there's a person on the other end of this thing that we're trying to do and a lot of it's going to be dependent upon how they take it mm hmm 
I'm, I'm just thinking how to, uh, how to unpack it. Um, so I would start with the, with agreeing with you completely that, um, we are not designing experiences. We are designing for experience. Right. So, uh, we can do only so much, be, but the rest doesn't, it's not up to us of, you know, what happens. So, uh, you know, th there's the saying, like, you can lead the horse to the water, but cannot right. make it drunk. So right. I think that this, this is very relevant for our work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, uh, and I think that we have the, the ways and the methods to set up the, the expectations to start with. So, uh, you can, make people feel either that they don't know what they are going to get through. So they are surprised or you can under promise. So then when they come and even though they may not be um, as uh, excited when yeah. they start, when they discover what's in it, what, what's in it for them, they might actually get this positive um, uh, emotion that we are we are always hunting for so badly as experienced designers. So actually, uh, let me give you an example. I mentioned to you before we uh, we went on the record that I was doing this this uh, radical design workshop with with right. one of my clients here in Poland, and uh, I've never done this that crazy before, <laughs> and so that was one thing. So it was a bit of a risk on my side, but I also I've never done this kind of creative workshop with that particular cli client. So right. there was double risk. So right. I, I didn't take a client I knew. I took a new client and decided to experiment on them. Uh, smart of me, right? Uh, yeah, right? Anyway, so basically what I did, I scared them a little bit. Okay. So I told them that they are going to go through something that's going to be so different and so unexpected uh, that they cannot be prepared for that. So they were, th th their imagination went wild uh, on the evening before, because we were like away from, from Warsaw, from, from the city uh, in, a, in a location. There were like at least two or three people who came to me and said like, you know, I'm not sure they want to participate in this whole craziness that you prepared <laughs> for us. Like, I'm, I'm yeah. actually not comfortable. And they were saying like, I'm not comfortable with improv. I'm not comfortable with role playing. I'm not, right. I'm not comfortable with imagining things. Like they were really, really scared. And then we started going through the whole thing and it right. was fun. It was like game and like you had a crime scene that you had to solve and, okay. uh, and, and, you know, like you had to write your legendary, legendary self and like all these things. And they, as they were going through and we hid everything that was in the, like, you know, parts of the uh, creative process in tasks that they were supposed to do for each other. Okay. So in the end, they ended up and we sat at the end for the, for reflection. And I said like, look guys, you actually went through the design process, but I just didn't tell you that. Right. We just practice it on something that was completely unimportant. And they were like, wow. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, we, we can do this as experienced designers, right? We have all the tools to actually make people believe that they are getting into something else that we are actually getting them into, which is cool. Wouldn't it have been easier just to like, like have a PowerPoint? It sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
Oh yes. <laughs> I don't know if it would have been as effective, but definitely uh, I mean, easier. Like you got, you got, there's a crime, there's clues, they got to do things, <laughs> yeah. there's role playing, there's improv. Yeah. Or I could just, you know, have like a workshop <laughs> with PowerPoint and a workbook. Yeah. Yes, totally. So actually <laughs> the, the, the funny story with that, with this crime scene is like they get into a crime scene uh, which looks really spectacular. There's blood and there's like some powder which look like cocaine. And, you okay. know, th- th- it's it's really like there's like a, a, a syringe and there is like a cool <laughs> pack and a book and I, I don't remember, a shoe. Like really, really like the, the tables are turned around and the chairs right. are completely, like the room is basically destroyed, demolished completely. Right. And they get into it. And I, I, I have the story that like someone got kidnapped. I'm, I'm not killing by <laughs> imaginary right. okay, participants. <laughs> and, uh, and basically we have to solve it. Otherwise we cannot uh, go on with the workshop because the police is going to kick us out. So like, you know, like we, we either we do it or we done, like we are not, not following through. And basically, uh, so, so they go and they come up with stories uh, of what had happened. Right. So they, right. they have this really crazy stories and they come and they present their stories and then the the question is okay like so which one which story wins right and i said that there is actually there was never a story in the first place right it's a bunch of random sure uh stuff thrown together and this is basically how our brain works our brain creates stories and loves stories and this is yeah how we think about experience design right i love that um because I was just looking at some, I'm teaching a course this coming semester that I'm calling conspiracy theories and shared realities. <laughs> wow. Okay? Yes. I know. And, but one of the things in looking through the material on conspiracy theories and conspiratorial thinking is that our brain really likes to create patterns out of randomness. Exactly Absolutely. what you're describing, right? And so we, we, and when you look at conspiracy theories, you have a set of data you know, that these like, you know, or, you know, powder, overturned chair, syringe, whatever. And we form these gestalts, these, these collective representations in which all of these elements are integrated. And it's very qualitative, right? It's like, or in quantitative, it's very much like data analysis. Like how do we make, how do we turn this data into information? And if you add different context to it, it, it creates different information. That same data can create different information by changing or modifying who's looking at it and what context through, you know, in which it's being viewed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent agree. So yeah. like you say, like this is a, an interesting way to make us on the one hand aware of how easily we are trapping ourselves right. <laughs> in stories, right. but, but also the, uh, if you're an experienced designer and, and you have this knowledge that, whoever comes through your experience is going to create that story, you leave the prompts, right? You right. leave the stuff and you hope that the, the the likely pattern that they are creating is actually going to be created. Whether this is a conspiracy, conspiracy theory or right. whatever other experience we are aiming at. Right. <laughs> I, and I really like the fact that you're talking about expectations because I've been thinking about this a lot. This course I'm going to teach on experience design, we're going to be covering expectations. And it also makes me think about like wedding vows, because if you think about wedding vows, there's a, there's, there's, there's a lot of pressure, right? I mean, you promise to love, honor, and cherish, to death do you part. It would be so much better in wedding vows if you just said something like, you know, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I'm going to try really much. hard. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give it my best shot, but I can't yes. promise you anything. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, th- I got issues. There's going to be problems. 
And I say, you know, say it's somewhat in jest, but if you think about something like expectation setting, and if you really believed in those expectations, you know, there's something very important about under-promising and over-delivering. <laughs> oh, yes. Because <laughs> if you set the bar too high, there's no way, right? You can, yeah, you, best, you can only disappoint. There is no other way. You can be the best <laughs> right? high jumper and pole vaulter in the world. If that bar is set too high, it doesn't matter. You're not no. clearing it. No, but if it's no way. too low, it's not impressive. Yeah, because that's you watch true. The Olympics and you're watching the high jumpers and there's like, you know, walking up, you know, to the bar and stepping over. You're like, well, that was, that's not a big deal. So there is this, <laughs> there is this range between impossible to clear and yeah. not impressive or exceptional to get over. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Experience oh, design, yeah. it feels like it's like, where are we setting that bar? Yeah. And the interesting thing is that if you look at, uh, Honestly, majority of companies out there in the world, <laughs> they fall into that second c- category, right? The bar is so low. You look at it and say, like, seriously, right. can't you try a little bit harder? No, no, because that's no. risk. I mean, one of the things I was looking at your, your material that, and when we t- t- talked the first time, you talked about, you know, pushing the envelope or pushing people to do new things. And I, you know, I have this note written down about how do you get businesses to push the envelope when they are set up to do things that are proven, mm, right? Yeah. You, know, you know, the, 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 one of the things I say about uh, management or, and you know, the reason why they teach leadership in MBA programs is because they aren't right. They're not leaders. And I understand yeah. why, because the more you lead the greater into new areas, the greater the risk. I mean, Steve jobs was fired, right? I mean, because, there's a higher risk of failure trying new things. And so I understand why businesses don't set the bar higher because mm-hmm. the higher the bar, the risk of failure increases and that failure could translate into them losing their position. So, I mean, how, when you're working with clients, how do you get them to not just during the workshop embracing this risk, but actually translating that sense of risk-taking into their business practice, their organizational mm-hmm. practice? So, I'll start with the fact that uh, this risk risk avoidance is a very wise behavior for most of the time. Because if you think about it, if we look at the um, the, the normal distribution, right? We've got right. the innovators, early adopters, early majority, late majority, right. conservatives, right? Like laggers. Where is the money? Right. The money is early majority, late majority, and laggers. This is the bulk of their earnings. So here and now, not taking risks when you are doing well, sounds like a kind of right decision. Right. The problem is that if you are on the top, there is certainly a newcomer to the market right. who is going to change that game sooner or later. And in our times, the game changes so- sooner rather than later, right? right? Like in the past, it would be 50 years, da da. Now it's like, you know, 10, five, sometimes three. Um, so so the, 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 the problem is that if you don't have enough protection against that future threat in your ideas, but also in your way of thinking, then you're going to be eaten. You're going to be gone. And we've seen it several times across the world, right? That companies that were big uh, a moment ago, suddenly they're just non-existent anymore. Uh, We could probably list a a big one here, uh, make a big list here. So um, 
at the same time, uh, you know, like my, uh, my playground is Europe generally and Poland in particular because I'm Polish. Right. So Poland, because of its history, is a risk avoiding country. So on the top of the fact that majority of leaders are generally avoiding risk because of not harming the milking cow that they are uh, trying to feed. I I come from a country (laughs) which is basically generally not wanting to take risks. They are like very conservative. So how do you deal with that when you have those two things? So for me, there are two things. One thing that I do is that I especially when I talk to business clients, I stop talking about experience design as this one huge, gigantic project that they have to prepare and then launch. I talk to them about designing micro experiences throughout all the processes and all the um, parts of the solution that they are having. Right. And actually it makes sense for two reasons. One reason is that when they start doing this, like I said, I come from a conservative country. So they are freaked out to do anything like very much out of the regular comfort zone. But then when they do this and they did like they, they change something tiny bit in the first experience, they're a little bit more, more adventurous with the second one and the third right. one and the fourth one. So basically, you know, like I get them become more and more adventurous as they see that these things start working. So this is one reason. The other reason is that as humans, uh, as customers, we we have this terrible flow for every single business out there, which is called the positive adaptation. So anything that was really great yesterday is the new normal today. And we expect more. So basically, if you kind of unravel it experience by experience, like micro experience by micro experience in the different places of your solution, suddenly you are triggering people to see that there is always something new. And as long as it is consistent, that's why I'm working with, uh, with differentiators and I'm working with a vision. So I say, okay, like, if you have a vision and people see that you change this one thing and then you change another thing and it goes in the same direction right. and it has the same differentiator as the, the as the defining force of what you are uh, providing, they start believing you. Right. And then basically over time, you get to a point where you are braver and your solution is, is seen as consistent and just nudges people that, okay, this company is really changing. And that's the, that's my trick. Yeah, it's a good trick because, you know, we, there's so much being mentioned today about nudging, right? Not changing, but nudging, just kind of, you know, rather than doing a, you know, revolutionary qualitative change that might be transformative, it's this incremental steps towards transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, rather than changing your entire wardrobe, maybe get a new shirt or maybe buy a new belt or maybe, you know, different pair of shoes because we can't, you know, it's harder to process seeing us transformed in a way that's unrecognizable than it is to, to, to changing some aspect, you know, maybe get some socks that are a little wild. <laughs> Cause it gets yeah, you used yeah, to exactly. <laughs> maybe no one sees it, but you get used to the idea of seeing it on yourself. Yeah, totally. So, so th- this is, I love this, this, uh, this uh, comparison to socks, like really, <laughs> because I, I'm going to use it. Please. <laughs> if you don't mind. No, by all means. <laughs> because I think that this, you, you, you have it spot on that for, for these companies, if they try, if they dare to do this, like, you know, like the, wear the socks, the, the proverbial socks, uh, 
maybe the customers won't notice, but they will feel more empowered by it. And the next time they will put like crazy trousers or (laughs) whatever other piece of clothing that they they, they go after, right? Yeah. And I say the socks because I did this because I was looking, you know, my, I have three daughters and one of the things my daughters were saying is that, uh, y- you know, you need to glow up. I'm like, what, what's, what's glow up? <laughs> I'm like, glow up. What's glow up? I said, blow up. She's like, no, glow up. I'm like, what does that mean? She's like, well, you, you change your style, right? You change you, And I'm like, well, I don't know. I didn't, number one, I don't know. I had a style. I just have clothes. <laughs> <laughs> number two how does one even go about glowing up so i started getting socks that weren't traditional dress socks um and that was you know and yesterday i got some new shirts a year after getting the new socks it took a while <laughs> so it's a work in progress but you know this this notion of feeling comfortable in the change that you're that you're trying to achieve by doing things that you can manage and, you know, whether, you know, I mentioned therapy, even in therapy, right. You know, it's like, don't change everything, change one thing. What's the simplest thing you can change right now to create different patterns and let's start working on that. And it almost sounds like immersion therapy in some ways that if a person is afraid of spiders, if they're afraid of heights, or if they're afraid of flying, or if they're afraid of like the water, you know, you don't just jump in the water, you know, stand next to the pool, you know, stand next to the pool, but don't get yeah. Right. And then totally. maybe you then put your foot in the water right? and then you kind of gradually get into that notion versus when I was growing up, you know, the parenting strategy was just take the kid, throw him in the water and let him figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. Same for me. So actually Very my dramatic. husband was, my, my husband was teaching me, he's a, a swimming instructor and he was oh, teaching perfect. me to jump and I was like really afraid of jumping. So we were in Greece in one of the islands and there was this pool. Uh, and at the like you know towards the sea the the the, the le- level of the pool was almost the level of the water and it was like kind of gradually going right. into into a hill there so basically we uh, he he made me jump from from the verge and then we were gradually going like meter right. by meter higher and higher and i was jumping and in the end i jumped from the top and it was like wow i never imagined myself doing this but this is this is exactly with, with what we are trying to do with companies actually i have this one client uh, they they did the the strategic workshop with me, so we came up with the vision and the differentiators. Right. And then uh, they asked me, okay, like, can you lead us through a project? Because we 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 are afraid that we will be drawn into our old ways. So we did a project. It was more a tactical project than a, uh, an operational project. So so we did a a project there, which turned out to be really nice. And I, uh, but you know, like when you are a consultant, you sort of um, you are not in the implementation phase. <laughs> so I, I met the I met the the guys from that uh, from the workshop at the conference recently. And I was like, "Hey, how did it go?" And they said, "Like, you know, like we didn't implement everything yet, but the thing is that the strategy plus the workshop changed the way we approach things." And I was thinking that right. sometimes we are so uh, as as consultants or designers that come from outside, we are so focused on this final result on getting that. Right the experience right but what i've noticed recently more and more with myself is that i'm much happier when i hear from my clients that they did something with me and they cannot go to the old ways because in the end yeah because in the end i'm not going to be there with them uh at you know throughout the entire journey but if i manage to shift their worldview 
uh, towards experience and toward, towards understanding what it means and towards, you know, like doing it a little bit more creatively. Right. Then probably my job is much better done than if I just got them this one project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you know consultants often get a bad rap, deservedly so, because it's just well, here's my solution. We need to implement it, versus trying to get people, clients, leaders, whomever, to change, right? And yeah. the idea of empowering, right, almost making yourself obsolete through empowering people to be able to do the work on their own. And it's not complete obsolescence because, you know, there's always opportunity to grow and learn and change even further, but you are kind of an experienced therapist, right? Because you're kind of working with clients to get them to unlock within them the potential they have, but for whatever reason has not been tapped into or accessed. Mm -hmm. So actually, what you said about becoming obsolete, this is a little bit of my strategy, uh, which is probably the worst strategy that you can have. Yeah, it's a tough uh, business a strategy. <laughs> right. But actually, this is the best business strategy. You right. know why? Because uh, I always come and I say, like, I want you to not need me as soon as possible. But the, the, the thing is that they learn to do the boring stuff and they don't need me for that, but they always need me for the interesting stuff because it's always challenging for them. Right. So I do the cool stuff and I don't have to do the boring. Right. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> my, 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 my wife is a therapist and, um, and I say to her, you know, so did, 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 did it, did you make any, you know, is anybody all better today? And she's like, no, I said, well, that's good because it keeps him just coming back. <laughs> it's not because she's a bad therapist. I'm like, you know, don't cure too many people. Um, but, you know, this idea of, unfortunately, there's a lot of people that need help, so there's no risk of that. But, you know, part of the therapy, you know, even part of an educator, right, is I, I'm not trying to teach you facts. I'm trying to teach you how to learn mm -hmm. through this topic. Precisely. You know, and my goal is to give you skills that allow you to have a lifelong uh, journey of education. And so how do I instill you with this through this particular topic rather than, I think that's where a lot of education, especially now with online education or YouTube or LinkedIn learning, you know, that's where, you know, if, if all I'm doing is teaching you facts or material, you don't need me. Yeah. Right. You just totally don't <laughs> need me. If I'm trying to teach you, if we're, if we're not just if we're trying to create an environment of discovery that you need me for, and if I'm trying to teach you skills of learning, engaging, collaborating, sharing, and synthesizing, that is the classroom, right? I mean, that's harder to do just on your own in front of a computer screen watching YouTube videos or LinkedIn videos or, or whatnot. So there is this notion of, you know, our goal is not just here's a solution, here's the facts. It's how do we engage in this process of emergent discovery because the world is always going to be changing yeah and how do you be become comfortable with that change because the change is comfortable exactly like you said so it's not this huge leap that we we are scared of taking but it kind of almost doesn't feel like change because you are having fun and you are doing things that feel stretching but just a little bit and then right. you know over time you suddenly are in a very different place but you didn't even notice that you got there right one of the things i keep hearing you talk about which i'm which i love to hear how you do it is 
mixing in more academic concepts into what it is you're describing. I know you have a PhD, so, you know, that's how, that's how we've been trained to think is in these concepts. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one of the big divides between academia and non-academia is the academic's inability to translate in a way mm-hmm. that's meaningful and impactful and adaptable, right? So, you know, in your own work, being able to translate things that might be high, you know, more complex concepts, but rendering it in ways that are accessible, meaningful, usable. What was, you know, how, how, how did you come to that? Was that something that you learned when you were doing your, your doctorate or was that something you had to evolve and develop on your own? I've definitely learned to do this when I was doing my PhD. Uh, I, I did my PhD uh, at Eindhoven University of Technology at the industrial design department there. And I must say that it was a really, really good place to develop that skill. And once you do it, <laughs> you cannot undo it. Or like sure. and once you learn it, you cannot unlearn it. Uh, at the same time, when I went into the business world and I started talking about experience design and designing experiences and why it is important, I've realized that for a lot of people who are, whom I was talking to, like business people, like CEOs and uh, marketing directors and even VPs of product, right? it all felt flimsy. Like they've said like, okay, like, yeah, that, that sounds really nice, but like, seriously, like what, what, what will it give me? So right. they weren't willing to do any of it right? because it was a nice thing for the customer. Obviously it had to be good for business as well. And this is where I realized that I can use my academic uh, skill of looking and finding the models and, and the data uh, about how people behave, how we right. think, how we experience and put it into a story that becomes convincing for these people. So basically right now, when I go uh, into the boardroom and I give a presentation, I get full attention of the, of the CEOs and the financial directors and so on, because I am not telling them this is all nice and customers are going to like you more. I'm saying, if you don't do this, the customers are going to have a bad opinion on you about you. And they are going to tell that opinion. And I have data from my own research showing that people who have a, have had a bad experience, they are going to tell that story to at least 11 people. And they are going to keep on telling the story for longer than a number of years. Right. Are you, are you, if you, if you're happy with this, right. Don't do experience. Right. If you are, if you want to your customers to tell a story that's actually convincing other people to join your company or like to join your, uh, like use your product and join whatever you are doing, you need to work on this. And and the only way to work on it, apart from the price, of course, like you can make everything cheaper, but this is not something that they want. Right. So the only direction there is to do this experience thing. Right. And also the other thing that really works in that context is that I always, because they always ask me, I don't know if you get this question, but I always get this question, like, how does it differ from marketing and branding? So like, is it the same? You're talking about differentiators, but we have our brand brand values or brand characteristics. Right. And of course the words can be the same, but what I'm always saying is, look, brand is a promise. 
experience is a fulfillment of that promise. Ah, that's nice. Right? And uh, and, and basically, so, so if you A, overpromise, no matter how much money you spend, you are never going to deliver on that. So don't overpromise. This is point one. <laughs> but if you promise and deliver on that promise, you're not going to be memorable for people because they, you gave them what they expected. So what you have to work with is uh, on, on the one hand, you have to learn how to under promise and hide certain things like, you know, like the Easter egg hunt for customers. Right. But on the other hand, you have to deliver a consistent experience that makes people feel that they were under promise. And now there is an over delivery. Right. And the thing is that you can do it randomly. So you can go with, putting things like a little bit of, of, of some fun here and a little bit of meaning there and so on. Or you can base, like you come up with a vision and with the differentiators and just stick to them and right. then be consistent with what you deliver. So in a way, so this story together with like how we, how we memor uh, memorize things and how we process things and how how the the experiences that we have create the story that we narrate for, for ourselves so right. coming back to uh the, the beginning of our conversation before we started uh recording right. uh, th th this is ever th this is all the stuff that makes the people in the boardroom listen right they may not they oh, sometimes they may not be ready to act upon it Actually, I have this one company, which is super funny. So they invited me to have a presentation for them. 2018, I think, maybe 2019. Mm -hmm. They, I, I went, I gave the presentation, nothing happened afterwards. Sure. Uh, but from the people who are around the board there, they tell me, Aga, they are still talking about the presentation. Mm you made them think so hard that they are not ready for a number of reasons to act upon it, but you made it so that they cannot forget about it. It's like, oh, okay, perfect. <laughs> That's something, right? I mean, yeah. you, you, made, you made an impact, you had an impression. Yeah. And I was just thinking that, you know, this brand is promise, experience, fulfillment of that promise. And then looking at your website and our conversation, you know, the story that people tell is feedback on whether the experience goal was achieved, right? Did you fulfill that promise? What story, what memories do they have? What stories do they tell? And one of the, as a person who does a lot of qualitative research, you know, how often just trying to render experience into a quantitative measure can miss out on the richness of the experiences people had, even though it's easier to capture these, you know, quantitative measures through some kind of survey it really doesn't give you an insight into what is going on and, mm. and how do we get people to engage in collecting those stories and then not just collecting them, you know, data, data analysis, easy data. I mean, data collection, easy data analysis, hard, especially with qualitative. How do you get them to engage in the analytics of those stories to find the meaningful elements that can allow them to understand whatever it is they're trying to do, what was experienced by the people who were the target audience? Mm -hmm. So, so th there are like two points that, uh, that I would like to make uh, in response to what you just said. So first thing, whenever I have, and I have this discussion about quantitative, qualitative, mm -hmm. uh, in the context of experience design or experience metrics all the time. Right. So I always say, look, if you have quantitative data and you have one customer 
who had a started having a bad experience, but then had a great experience at the end. And then you had another one who had a great experience and a bad experience at the end. You end up with the exact same score. What do you learn from that? Right. And they go like, hmm. Okay. So like, what do you propose? So this, this is where I get their attention. Uh, so usually what I do, I, I ask them to collect stories, uh, and I have two typical ways uh, of collecting stories for the strategic level, because it's, it's different when you do it on a tactical or operation or operational level that that can get much more quantitative and much more detailed, uh, or mixed methods and so on. But when, when you go on that top level, like the strategic level, I say like, you need to understand what people are talking about when they are talking about you. Right. Uh, because you want to have more stories like this, more stories where your vision and your differentiators are, are, are being talked about and fewer stories about the stuff that you don't want people to talk about. So like, if you don't know what they are talking about, how right. do you figure out <laughs> what it is? Yeah. Uh, so I have two ways. One is like really collecting the stories. Uh, so I ask, I ask the customer, say like, re- write down the last story that you told to someone about that brand or the product or, you know, the experience that you've got with in connection with, with, with that particular company. And people are like telling really interesting stories often. And then the other thing is, and this is much more fun. Uh, I ask uh, customers. So the, 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 the participants of my research to write either love warning or divorce letter to the company or to the product. And this is where the, the emotions are coming out. Like, really strongly and uh-huh. it's so so funny because like sometimes people say like oh i started writing a love letter and i ended up having a divorce letter or i started divorce and i decided okay like actually it's just a warning it's not that bad so it's very interesting that we actually have those emotions right. and then what you can do you can actually so you can add to it a number of quantitative questions that inform this qualitative data that comes from the letters or, or from the stories and also you can do the sentiment analysis. So you can actually do a very, very right. linguistic analysis of right. those stories to get a lot of data out of it. And even if you don't do that, if you read, especially, especially with the stories with the letters, it works less like this, but with the stories, you get immediately the, all the touch points that work excellent and the touch points that work bad. Right. And you can, you can choose and pick and say, okay, like, if we see that these particular touch points are so important to our customers, and sometimes people don't even realize that this happens. Like I had this one furniture company, like they were making, like they, they were, they, they were making furniture and they were sending the furniture to, to their customers. Um, and they would basically, they, they, they designed an amazing uh, process of buying the furniture. And there was like something which all the customers described as the black hole. So basically you, you buy the furniture, you pay this company, and then you start wondering whether it wasn't a scam because right. there's like nothing. Right. So basically what we did, we designed the whole, so, so it was very clear that there was this tension growing in customers. And, you know, at some point there was that delivery message coming and it was like, oh, okay, like right. <laughs> I'm going to get what I paid for. Right, right. But basically it was very clear that we had a, an excellent space of creating a very light uh, way of communicating that could differentiate the company. So like, you know, we were, the, the company was very sustainable. So uh, I said like, how about writing the first email talking about how the, how the uh, project is being sent to the factory. So there is like as little waste as, 
as possible coming out of it. So like the, the certain pieces of furniture are put together. Right. So basically you, you don't waste the, the wood, uh, it was wooden, um, uh, wooden furniture. Uh, and then you have another part, which is like about packing. So like, why don't you tell these people how you prepare it for delivery? And we created the, the, these tiny touch points uh, throughout this waiting time. And, you know, like suddenly things got much better, surprisingly, right? <laughs> I love the furniture thing. I, I mean, I, I just, you know, one of the phrases that comes to my mind is furniture holds all the parts of our lives, right? I mean, it's, and what recently, or maybe a couple of years ago, not so recently, we got a new dining room table. And when we went to go pick up the table, we bought it used. When we went to pick up the table, it was at a basically a senior living facility where, you mm -hmm. know, people who were retired or living on their own, you know, were in these, you know, apartments, you know, in this facility. It was a nice facility. And you could tell that the person who owned this table was no longer there and wasn't coming back. Yeah. That this person had either something, you know, she had passed away or she had to go to a care facility. Mm -hmm. And so I, I had my, my wife, I said, can you email the person who sold this to you and ask them the story about this table and ask them what role this table played in their lives? And so she did, and they got back to us. I actually wrote a blog about this, about yeah. the, the emotional connection of furniture, yeah. you know, all the birthday parties, all the events, all the celebrations, all the Sunday dinners, all, you know, and this table held, supported all these aspects of these people's lives. And it's not just an object. It's, it's something that makes our home distinguishable as ours. Yeah. You know, and if, you know, this idea of the stories that people would tell about furniture, when you ask them, and this is why I love doing ethnographic research, it's just, you know, you just, you get into their worlds and you discover ways they think about things that you would never understand. And then turning that into a business, uh, you know, you know, noticing it's like, oh, I, we had no idea. I, I thought I was making furniture. No, you're not making furniture. You're building the things that support people's lives. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. You yeah. know, and how do we find this out? We asked. Mm -hmm. We asked the customers, you know, what their experiences, what their perceptions were. And we found out. And often, as you're saying, it's just mind blowing what we learn from just asking. Mm hmm. Absolutely. So with, with this the same furniture com uh, uh, company I made, uh, so, so they wanted to understand how their aspirational customers are thinking. So they had three groups of people with certain mindset that they wanted to understand better. And the, the mindsets were how they call them at first. So I'm, I'm going to say uh, in a moment how, how we figure out who they were. So they were like creative professionals, uh, high aesthetics and sustainability focused. Uh, so we did the study uh, and it was, it was international. So we actually did it on Miro, which okay. lasted for like three weeks. Wow. We were sending the, um, the little tasks to the, uh, to, to, to the group of customers who were like all, they, they actually assigned themselves to the groups. So it okay. wasn't us uh, doing nice. this. They, they actually, pointed and said, okay, like I, uh, we asked them, okay, like how, how much do you feel being part of that group of, of that group of, of that group? And then we would start asking them about what harmony meant to them, what sustainability meant to them, 
what house meant to them, what neighborhood meant to them. And they were like supposed to do pictures and, and, and do the associations. It was like different exercises for the different question, of course. Uh, and at the end, we, we asked them, okay, so if you are to tell us a story about how would you like to understand your furniture, what would that be? Right. And what we figured out was that the sustainability focused people uh, were the earth protectors. Mm. So they, they said, like, for us, we want companies to teach us different behaviors. Right. So we want through the stuff that they offer to us, we want them to make the sustainable behavior, not only the default thing, but something that like, if you don't do this, you should be ashamed of it. And there will be like, you feel like, ah, yeah, that, that wasn't a good thing. So like, it's like unavoidable. Really. Right. So that was them. Then I, then we've got the, 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 those high, high aesthetics, which we kind of imagine that people who just want to have nice objects or like beautiful objects around them. They said like, mm -mm, we are authenticity seekers. Oh, there you go. So they said they don't want to have like high aesthetic meaning, like, you know, all new shiny right. furniture. They want the table that you mentioned. Right. They want, they want the story with the, with the object. Of course, the object has to have a, an aesthetical value for them, right. whatever that means. Uh, but they want, to feel that something which may even be ugly for others has a beauty that it's that's obvious to them for whatever right. reason and for them having all the secondhand things the things with the stories that was like super important right and then we've got the sustainability uh no uh, so, sorry i i saw that the first was sustainability right. then the highest creative professionals that was interesting so basically we figured out that these creative professionals felt that creative professionals uh, creative professions are a scam today because scam. on the one hand Yes, because huh. on the one hand, you wanted like you become a designer or a right. architect because you want to change the world and you find yourself being part of the machine that destroys right. destroys that world yes. more efficiently. Yes, yes, so yes, they yes. were like very disappointed with their professions. Right. And on the other hand, they said uh, the creative uh, professionals of today are the YouTubers and the uh, Instagram people and so on. So like we are kind of in the same category, although we are designers and architects and, right. and you know, we try to do different things, illustrators and so on. So they said that they don't want to uh, give up creativity as their differentiator, but they want to say like, we are not creative professionals anymore. We are creative change makers. Oh. And if we are not focused on change and they said, we want to focus on change that's a change in the society. So there's a group of people, a community that gets changed along with us. So suddenly with the first group, it was very much focused on myself. The second group was very much focused on uh, recovering things from others. But the third group was really focused on community and society. And, right. and you look at it, it's like, okay, like this one furniture company can actually provide and care for all or cater for all these needs in different ways. That's pretty cool. I yeah. mean, you know, and it's, it's, you know, part of your challenge then is, you know, given all of this, whereas, you know, academically minded people or qualitative researchers, we just hear that. And that's like, that's amazing. That's enough. 
Um, and then the furniture <laughs> company is going, okay, like, what do we do with that? And you're like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. and the translation of it becomes an interesting next step in saying, okay, here's the ideation phase of how we can translate these, these findings into action in, in whatever yeah. way. And what, one of the things I, I definitely wanted to ask you about, and I'm glad you mentioned the creatives at the end, because with experience design, right? I, 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 part of my concern and something we talked about earlier when we first talked, is it, is it becoming so much of a buzzword or a thing that it's losing its, its core and user experience definitely has because user experience is, you know, has become less than making things more usable for people so that their lives are easier and more into how do we retain customers so that they buy more stuff, right? Um, We get more clicks. It's more psychological warfare in some ways Mm -hmm. than it is servicing the needs of the user. And with with your experience and perspective and experience design, given that it's on, you know, it's all over the place all of a sudden, right? Yes. Your, your thoughts on what is the what is the core of its integrity, right? What's it about, you know, mm. inherently that it needs to retain, and how do we make sure that it stays? Or is there a you know a new next thing that's going to be called because the thing that it's called today is becoming too corrupt that its meaning is lost? You know, you know, you know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Absolutely. So l- let me start with uh, with uh, with a little bit of a histor- historical. Uh, okay. Um, you know, sort of story. So basically, you know, I'm I'm around the blog for for quite a while. I yeah. I did my my uh, my masters in uh, user system interaction uh, back in 2000, and so you know nobody talked about uh, user experience. The the, the word like the the the, the combination right. of words was not invent, in, invented back then yet. So basically, we were either usability engineers or right. interaction designers, and then you know like more and more people got into the profession so and then of course uh, don norman wrote the emotional design and he started right. talking about user experience uh, and then for me the early days of user experience as a phrase and how it was defined was exactly how i define experience today it was much broader it didn't have it wasn't connected to mobile and web and uh, you know all the digital uh, uh, solutions that are out there but then because a lot of people got into it and it was fancier than being an interaction designer or usability engineer, they claimed that name right. for themselves, redefining what it really meant. And uh, the same happened with, then with customer experience. So like, you know, like people from business are like, oh my gosh, like there's this user experience thing coming from technology generally. So how about we have our own sort of part of experience, which right. is the customer experience, which right. comes from a customer service and comes from quality assurance right. and uh, all these all these domains. So it became fancier to be called customer experience designer than to be called a, a, a quality assu- uh, assurance person, right? Right. And now we have the same thing because like, you know, user experience is already like kind of put into like, okay, you are like making mockups and customer experience, you are making processes. So these people are looking for something that elevates their professions. And the next thing is like, let's cut the user at customers and let's use the word experience. Right. And there we go. So basically, um, I think that this is uh, something that is happening right now. Or all around the world, I can right. see people, and I'm uh, who, who claim to be experienced designers. Right. And I'm looking, and it's like, come on, like you don't even get what experience is about, right. and you are claiming. But at the same time, it's a good thing. 
Because first of all, it means that our this profession that was in the fringes of understanding is becoming more and more important. So for once, these people want to learn more and they want to read our books, for example, right? Uh, and they want to develop this. So that it means that, that, that there is an evolution and there is a movement in the, in the domain of experience design, which is a great thing. And the other thing is that we can either uh, kind of be grumpy about the fact that, oh my gosh, like we used to use this title all those years ago and now everybody using it and like they are just right. kind of polluting it and, you know, making it like not be what we, what we, thought it was or we can change that name because they, they will be hunting for another name sooner rather than later and change it into something that's valuable so like for myself and this is this is the the answer to the second part of your right. question uh, is that for myself i think that as experience designers uh, so experience design was, was very much focused on uh, like, like Joe Pine calls it, uh, making, making people to be able to spend, spend their time well, right? It was about right. fun and pleasure and so on, which is very hedonistic, but it's not very impactful. Right. So you were creating memorable experiences, but not meaningful experiences. And I think that if we use the new phrase, uh, to suggest that actually experience design is not only about fun, but it's about changing the world in a right way. Uh, then maybe we can actually get more people be follow 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 us in that way of thinking, and therefore right. start badgering their own cast uh, their own own companies to actually start thinking in that way. So for me personally, right. is uh, something that uh, I am going to talk about uh, when we meet in uh, Utah in a, right. uh, in a few weeks. Uh, I'm going to talk about impact, right. and I want to be impact experience designer. Uh, so basically. I, I, what I, what I would love to claim, and it would be awesome if this became the new buzzword is that if you're, if you design an experience, it needs to have a positive impact on the world. Right. And there we can, and, and if people claim it, and even if they make it like kind of simplify it, uh, and make it maybe not as great as I wish today it would be, or it could be. I can come up with another main name that will elevate it again right. in the right direction. So I'm actually happy that people hunt for those names. Right. I mean, you're speaking my language because I'm a sociologist, right? I mean, this is what, you know, it's it's funny because, you know, people go into a sociologist, as hard as it is to believe, we don't go in it for the riches and the fame. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't believe that. Do. I don't then, believe that. All the sociologists are, are no, I know are millionaires, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> People think I'm going to become rich, becoming a sociologist. And then they're in it and they get disappointed. Um, <laughs> And then they tell breakup stories and divorce stories from sociology. You know, people go into sociology because they they see the world as is and imagine a world as it could be, right? And and sociology is about studying the world as is, but then also thinking about how it can be very often. And I'm a clinical sociologist, so I'm very much about applying what it is I know for transformational change. And so for me as a sociologist who works with businesses and works at a business school, you know, this is just, you know, the thing we do. And one of the reasons I'm so interested in employee experience is that it's the, to me, as a person who's, you know, from Detroit, studied labor, labor movements, unions, it's the next iteration of an employee-centric um, program of activity. Absolutely. 100%. 
you know, and how do we try to, how do we use what we know about society and systems and social change and then connect it with this world, this, this, this doorway into business so that we can have these conversations in ways that business people can understand with this element of transformational positive change, whether through nudging or whether through completely reconstructing, we can still move things in a positive direction. Because I think for a lot of, at least a lot of people we've had in this podcast and people I talk to, they do care about people. Mm-hmm. You know, they, 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 they go into experience design often because they care about people and they care about making things better for people, yeah. whether individual users or groups. Yeah, I'm laughing that uh, every single experience designer out there or user experience or customer experience designer is a person who wants to fix the world one way or the other. Sometimes, unfortunately, their idealism is being misused by companies uh, because they are thinking they're in, in one point, they are fixing something, but they're they actually fixing, uh, fixing the system that's ultimately not right. Right. Uh, but they are still, they are into fixing stuff. And a lot of people, and I see this when I teach my grad classes that you get them five years into the profession or 10 years in and they're dealing with disillusionment. Yes. I thought I was going to be doing X. Now I'm doing Y. And so now I'm searching for how it is that I can fulfill my promise of why I got into this in the first place, you know, fix the world, make it better with the corporatization um, of the profession. Mm-hmm. You know, how do we, how do we move, how do I retain that essence so that I can be true to myself and then coming to us professors or whomever, or people like you as consultants for understanding how to do that. Mm-hmm. So actually uh, I come back to the story about creative professionals who said that they actually, yeah. instead of being the breaking the machine, they became cogs in the machine. Right. And this is exactly what you are describing right now. And I've got it's it's really interesting because I'm I'm doing this. I don't know if I mentioned it to you, but I I'm doing a course uh, based on my book, uh, which is called the Umami uh, Umami Strategy Course or Workshop. Yeah. And there I have a lot of people who are in these positions. They are like they they they've been around the block for 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 a while, and right. they um they are looking for for a way to do things that are still even a little bit meaningful for them. So they end up uh, in, in in this course and I'm laughing that it's like a co- professional course but it's also a therapy <laughs> for a lot of this people. This is like a therapy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but then what I'm saying is like, you are not going to change your company, you know, right away. It's, it's not going to go from one day to another. But what you can do if you come up with a consistent way of talking about this stuff, you can, you know, like you can start making a thousand small changes, like, you know, dev, dev by a thousand cuts, a change by a thousand tiny movements. Mm-hmm. It's exactly the same. And they, like once they see that and they understand that if they have enough tools to actually do this, they can make that change. It kind of gives them a little bit of more optimism, I would say. And another thing they often tell tell to those that are who are most disappointed. Uh, I've got this this one uh, lady who became a customer experience uh, director uh, at wow. a company that, that doesn't understand the beat uh, what what it means. And she says like Aga, like I'm talking to these people to my bosses, and they they just they are 
tro- 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 troglodytes. That's a good word. <laughs> right. like they, don't under- they don't understand anything. It's just like they are from a different era. Like, what am I supposed to do? And I'm saying like, you know, you have two options. No, you have three options. You can stay there and suffer. Right. Trying to convince them. You can leave or you can decide that in the uh, country of blind people, a one-eyed is a king or a queen in your particular case and start doing the stuff that you love and learn. You know, just do all the experiments that you are thinking about because if they don't understand but you have some budget, just like they are not going to say like, okay, you did it wrong because they don't even have a clue of what you could be doing. So just do the fun that gives you energy and gives you the feeling that you are learning. And if, if they don't change along the way, because sometimes companies change that way. And when you do a lot of cool stuff and a lot of employees get excited about it, like the, the bosses say like, Hmm, that's interesting. And they, they get interested in that. But if that doesn't change, if this doesn't happen, you will leave that company in a year time or two years time, but you will have an array of tools uh, and projects behind you uh, behind you that will basically make you be much more confident and much more convincing of why you should get the role in a company that actually understands what it means right yeah. did, did, did she listen to your advice she is listening to my advice <laughs> hey, what's that? that's always the next question did the person listen no <laughs> no she, she is again i'm coming back to this courage that we talk yeah. about uh, and the, the fact that polls are rather uh, uh risk avoid uh, avoiding people but she actually started doing certain things uh and i have to actually now now that you mentioned i'm gonna reach out and ask h- how it went but uh but actually she started she said like, okay i'm going to do this thing where we bring people and they teach us uh, and then we are going to do micro projects with them and learn through like as exercises, but actually doing things for the company. And hopefully some of them will be implemented. If not, yeah, to tough luck, <laughs> but yeah. I'll learn. <laughs> yeah. All you, all you can do is yeah. hope, right? All you can do is the yeah. best you can do what feels like it's your, you know, your true North, so to speak. Yeah. And you, you know, figure out what impact you can make where you are in ways big and small and know that, nothing is insignificant, right? Mm-hmm. Because you, yeah. we can't always predict what small change, what impact it's going to have down the road. But it's this, you know, having this, this direction that we keep orienting to as you're navigating this professional landscape, orienteering through this terrain, you know, how are we using landmarks to make sure we're on the right path? Yeah. And then continue to move on that way. And, you know, at some point you might have to change paths if it's, you know, if you figure out it's the wrong path, but to, you know, rather than stay on the wrong path and suffer, change paths and try to grow. And that's one of the nice things I think about experiences on as a profession is that it gives us the opportunity to combine our mission, our passion, our values with also hopefully getting a paycheck because those are yeah. nice too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You are not making money out of sociology. You have to make some of it somewhere, right? <laughs> I, oddly enough, I've made some money off of sociology, and I, every day I wake up, I'm going, well, "How did that? How did I get so lucky?" I can tell you that <laughs> when uh, I ended up at my school because they were the only one who offered me a job, uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, I never thought I would be at a business school because mm-hmm. I always actively avoided anything business related when I was going to <laughs> graduate school or undergraduate school. It was the last thing I thought I would ever be doing. 
My job, I thought, was to you know break down the system, smash the machine. But then you realize that you can have more impact on the machine and the system from inside of it. Absolutely. And by the way, there's like you 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 have uh, you ha- you you use this metaphor of uh, changing a path. I use it a lot for myself. Uh, as like yourself, I'm doing a lot of uh, self therapy, which is uh, infuriating at times. I would Very say. infuriating, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? I'm like I yeah, don't want to work any longer. I just want to be better. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I I was laughing because um, at some point I uh, I've decided that I want to diverge from from the path that I was on. Right. And I imagine it as a this huge highway. You know, like there were projects and clients and things were happening there. And then I wanted to go, you know, to the side to this tiny path that was there, and I wanted to exp- explore it. The problem was that as soon as as I closed my eyes. I was on the highway again. Right. <laughs> and it was like, so, so what I'm trying to say is that whenever we try to change our behavior or we want to change the behavior of our clients, being the, the clients, the business clients or the customers, the customers and the clients have a tendency to come back to the old behavior. So you really need to uh, be patient with them, uh, but at the same time, persistent to actually get them out of that highway. Like, like you didn't want to go on the highway, go to this path, <laughs> move. And, and, and at some point that happens, but it just needs time. And, and patient. hopefully patient for with ourselves, right? Yes. As well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm infinitely patient with other people, with myself. I'm like, you haven't gotten this yet? What's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, right. Easy. You know, everyone else, I'm like, it takes time. Don't worry about it. It's okay. You're making good progress, doing a good job. And when I, when I talk to myself, I'm like, what's wrong with you? Mm. Why can't mm. you get this so quickly? <laughs> and it's now like, we are coming back to expectations, right? <laughs> absolutely. We have to have honest expectations with ourselves. Well, yeah, Aga, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to seeing you in person because I think we oh, can uh, have a lot more to talk about. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm so much looking forward to meeting all of you uh, in Utah in October. October. Is your is your talk done yet? Um, no. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Me I'm, I'm, uh, Yeah, I'm giving it a, a try. I'm, I'm invited to a conference here in Poland. Uh, so I am having some bits and pieces getting ready. Good for you. Uh, and I'm going to try it out. So like, I, I want to f- see right. how it feels right, right, right. Uh, and how I want to develop it. But I think that because it's an important topic for me, like I, I have a very emotional uh, association right. with it. Uh, it's much more difficult to prepare that one than right. it was ever to prepare any other presentation I had. So I'm freaked out to be perfect. <laughs> see, oh, and I am the one opening. Out. So, you know, like I'm, <laughs> I, know. I, I'm I, I really you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I'm after you. So the good news and bad news is, you know, it's the peak end rule, right? No one's going to remember yeah. what the yes. end is. You know, but what I did because I remember the end. So there's a little <laughs> bit of safety being, like, you know, early, you know, early in the batting order. But at the same time, you know, you don't want people to go, "Ah, this is a waste of a trip." Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so, hope not. <laughs> thanks so much. Thank you so much. Have a lovely day. Like it's the day for you, right? It's for me the evening already. (laughs) Yes. Have a lovely day and see you soon. Bye. Bye. We want to thank Aga Shostek for a fascinating exploration of her approach to experience design and strategy, including the umami principle and leadership by design. 
You can learn more about Aga's books, her consulting, and her podcasts as well in our show notes. And as always, we want to get in conversation with you. And some of the questions that stick out with us are asking, how might you practice experience therapy in your work? How do you help people change their worldviews and see how change is possible? And in what ways have you incorporated meaning as part of experience design? So how do you help infuse practices, strategies, and even new ways of experiencing the world with things that matter to people? And for you, what is the most integral and central part of experience design. How do we get to the heart of the matter, as it were? As always, shoot us a message over at feedback at experiencexdesign.com or get in conversation on our LinkedIn page. And as always, as always, as always, thanks so much for listening to Experience by Design podcast. The EXD movement continues to grow with great abandoned, quite frankly, scariness because we are large in numbers and mighty in our mission. And that's all thanks to you. We love bringing you this content and we love talking to our guests that share their knowledge with us. And it is a pleasure to host this podcast. If you're an experienced design company or professional looking to increase your profile, there is no better place to do it than experience by design. So reach out to us to talk about sponsoring an episode or pitching a show idea. We're always willing to talk. And you can always show your support and appreciation by buying us a coffee through our Buy Us a Coffee link on our experiencexdesign.com website. And as Adam said, you can share your feedback at feedback at experiencexdesign.com and you can subscribe there as well. Don't cost nothing. And it allows us to stay in contact with you to bring you all the exciting experience by design news as it breaks. So with all of that, we want to thank you so much for joining us this week. Be safe, be healthy, be well, be kind, and please be here on the next Experience by Design.